Hi, and welcome to the Think Fast Podcast. My name is Simon Smith, and I am your host. Fast with two T's isn't a typo. It stands for Focused Advancement with Speed, Tenacity, and Transparency. Those are our cultural values at Benchside, where we use machine learning to help scientists run more successful experiments to bring novel medicine to patients faster. On this episode, we'll deep dive into an important tool for focus and advancement, subtracting. Now, I consider myself a connoisseur of minimalism. I am constantly looking to maximize impact for effort. I try to live by the 80-20 principle. I invest in index funds. I wear minimalist barefoot shoes. I once, for more than a year, eliminated my entire wardrobe, except for blue jeans and black shirts, to avoid having to decide what to wear each morning. But despite this obsession with minimalism and voraciously consuming related books, my guest on this episode opened my eyes to just how broad and pervasive are the forces that I'm fighting against. Lydie Klotz studies how we transform things from how they are to how we want them to be. A professor at the University of Virginia, he has authored more than 80 research papers on topics including design, sustainability, and most recently, how people systematically overlook subtractive changes when solving problems. Lydie's new book, Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less describes this newly discovered human bias, some of its likely origins, and how we can counteract it to identify new solutions to pressing problems and avoid unnecessarily adding more to our closets and our calendars. Hi, Lydie. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Simon. It's great to be here. I want to start at the beginning, go back a little bit. You have had quite a varied career. You've talked often about your experiences mowing lawns. You were <laughs> a, a professional soccer player, and then you got into engineering, and now you are researching problem solving and design. And I wonder if there are common threads that led to this work, if you can look back through your career and think about how what you did led to this point. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's certainly threads that didn't lead to this point, but I do think that mm -hmm. the, the threads that are like kind of pulling together towards this point are just this interest in um, making things better. Um, and that's, I've always been motivated by like, okay, how do I make a contribution in the world? How do I, um, how do I take the way things are and make them better? And then one thing that I've noticed kind of being underused was just the, um, subtracting as a way to make things better. And I, I didn't always like notice it as subtracting. And so you mentioned mowing lawns, for example, and when I was mowing lawns, I, <laughs> it gives you a lot of time to think. Um, and so I'd be walking around in circles. And one of the things that I would think about is like, what, well, what is the point of mowing this lawn that is only, I'm the only person who ever walks on this thing and it's me mowing it. Um, and so it was like, I've, I've always interested in like, okay, could we do this like a, a better way? Or like, what's, is there um, kind of redundant work going on here? Or, you know, maybe in some cases, the best thing to do is to, to 
not do anything or to, you know, kind of strip things away. Um, so that's the, you know, the mowing lawn piece. I think the soccer probably doesn't tie in too much other than just like I, I, I liked playing soccer and got to <laughs> go see a bunch of places. But I mean, I do think that there were times in my soccer career, for example, I taught one of the examples I given in the book, um, it was my senior season in college and we were just like totally underperforming compared to how much talent we had on our team. And uh, our coaches had tried everything all year long, you know, um, you know, adding incentives, you know, kind of switching out players, you know, switching out seniors and putting in first years and, you know, threatening us, being nice to us. <laughs> um, and, and finally, at the end of the year, one of the things they tried was to like take two players off in our in our practice. Um, and uh, and when they took the two players off in our practice, it forced like the nine who were left on the field to move around a lot more. And, and what it basically did was just kind of like move us out of our out of our funk. Right. We kind of just like settled into this stagnancy and um, I don't know is stagnancy a word, but we had we had, we had stagnated and um and by taking people away, it kind of made us do more. And then, of course, when we played the game, they put the players back on, but it had kind of like shaken us out of our slumber. So there is a subtracting tie in there. Um, and then fast forward to, you know, thinking about while I was playing soccer and the reason I was mowing grass was to pay for my education in addition to my parents helping pay for it. But the um and so I did civil engineering. I'd always been interested in these kind of like how the world around us is, is built. Um, and, but I also noticed that a lot, a lot of the kind of better designs or, you know, designs that stuck out for me were when things were taken away, like, you know, freeways in San Francisco is another story in the book. Um, and yeah, and I, I think the, the, the last tie-in that I'll mention there is the, the tie-in to sustainability and, you know, one guiding thing for me all all the way through has been like recognizing environmental issues and i think you know climate change being the biggest one for me right now um and just looking at some of the solutions to these problems like and again i'll, I'll take it to the built environment because that's the area i work in but mm -hmm. you know we know how to do net zero energy buildings we know how to um have transportation systems that use less energy and in a lot of cases we're not doing it and um <clears throat> Yeah, so I think a lot of the a lot of the opportunities there, everything from like removing HVAC systems and using passive ventilation to, you know, closing down highways and allowing more walkability, um, I think are things that don't necessarily in involve adding more new high tech stuff, but in, in fact involve you know subtracting from what's already there. And so, yeah, that's a summary of my life in in probably five minutes <laughs> through the lens of subtraction and a lot of, of that yeah. yeah and a lot of that resonates i replaced uh, my lawn or much of my lawn with clover because okay. it doesn't need a lot of mowing and it does well in drought and and on the tech side your soccer example is interesting because oftentimes when teams are underperforming it's because they're too big and smaller teams can often outperform larger teams in part because of the communications issues that come up with larger teams. So there's a lot that resonates there, but I would like to maybe put a really fine point on what we mean by subtractive problem solving and some, maybe you could provide some examples. And the reason is it at first blush, it seems like, Oh, subtracting. Yeah. That's just like how I have fewer things in my life, but it's a little bit more nuanced than that. So I'm hoping you can 
define what it means and provide some concrete examples that people can get their head around. Yeah, it's it is really nuanced and it's important to define it because uh, you know, as I was walking through my history of thinking about this, you know, I wasn't always thinking about it as subtracting being the thing. I mean, in in some cases conflating less with subtracting. Um and so, you know, very basically all these times in life when we encounter things that we want to make better, right? It's like you come to a situation and it could be a a Lego bridge, which is one of the examples I use in the book. I was playing Legos with my son and we had a bridge that was not level. He um, he subtracted a block from the, the longer column before I could think to add a block to the shorter column or, or as I was thinking to add a block to the shorter column. And so, you know, that bridge, there were two ways to kind of make this situation better. One was to take something away from what was already there. And the other was to add to what was already there. And, and what I did in that moment was to think of adding. And if my son hadn't been there, I would have just added and moved on and never considered subtracting. So yeah, Lego bridges, maybe that's not the most relevant thing to the real world, although I do play a lot of Legos. Um, but the uh, but the same, it's the same basic thing when you're thinking about your calendar. You mentioned, you know, thinking about the teams you're assembling, right? I mean, I think one of the counterintuitive things about this notion that smaller teams can be better at certain tasks, which um, is certainly the case, uh, is, you know, when you're like, okay, this team isn't performing well, your first instinct is, okay, who can, who can we add to it? What can, what resources can we give to them? What, uh, how can we kind of, you know, make this better? Um, and, and certainly sometimes adding is better, but so is subtracting. And the problem here is that we overlook subtracting as a way to make things better. And so often we'll just kind of add and then move on and without even considering subtraction as an option. So, you know, we've done, it's not just Legos, we've done research on this with travel itineraries, with people's calendars, with writing. Um, you could imagine this with computer coding, for example, uh, too. Um, so, yeah, so the basic idea of subtracting is we've got this situation, we wanna make it better, and there are two basic ways to do so. One is to add things to it, one is to take away from what's there, and we overlook the, the latter way and therefore miss out on um, opportunities. Mm -hmm. I wanna ask you on average, how badly biased we are towards adding over subtracting. And as I ask this question, I'll give you an example of something that came up just a couple of days ago. We were doing a brainstorming session for how we can improve our culture because we've mm -hmm. had, we're looking to do that because we're working remotely. So what can we do? And the model that we used for ideating is very standard, which is uh, start, stop, continue. But as I was thinking about it, I realized that the order of that is not <laughs> stop first. Right. And that logically, before you add anything, you should really be taking things away. But it's so ingrained in the way that we think that the model is start, stop, continue. And so from my perspective, it seems like it's probably 80, 90% of the time we go in that direction. I can't even think of a time when people would start with, with what they can take away. But in the research that you've done, what is the, the average, if it's possible to have an average across the different experiments that you've run? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess we could make an average. It's probably um, would be misleading. I think 
um, probably the most analogous one to what you're talking about doing this in the real world and just brainstorming. We, we had a study of our, um, we, a new university president came in and said, how can we make this university better and got suggestions from a bunch of stakeholders. And it was like 90 to 10, the split that you're talking wow. about where 90% of them were additive and 10% were subtractive. And I think that that's probably pretty accurate for like a free <laughs> brainstorming uh, session. What we really focused on in the research was the difference between um, people was basically overlooked subtractions, right? So you know, maybe 90-10 is the appropriate split, right? We don't know that. Maybe 90% of the time adding is better. And in, in which case it wouldn't necessarily be a problem that all of the all of the suggestions were additive ones. So what we wanted to find was, okay, well, how much of the time, if at all, are people saying adding, but if they thought of subtracting, they would have preferred that. They would have actually liked that better. And, you know, there, there's probably like a, a 20% gap in, you know, again, the experiments are, it, it varies across the different contexts, but that's significant, right? It's like 20% of the time people are missing out on this solution that is inarguably better. You know, so one of the examples we had, um, I think the most convincing one in our experiments was we gave people grids on a computer screen. So it was like just this grid pattern and it was uh, broken into four quadrants with a bunch of squares in each quadrant. And the task was to make the pattern symmetrical from left to right and from top to bottom. And um, what we did was put extraneous squares in one of the quadrants. So basically you could solve this thing in two ways. One would be to add those same extraneous squares to three other quadrants, or you could just subtract the squares. And we gave them practice so they knew how to operate things. They knew what was adding and subtracting. And people overwhelmingly added the three squares. And I still do, I'll do workshops on this. And the title of my workshop will be subtracting to improve. Give that at the beginning and people will overwhelmingly um, uh, uh, add in that situation. And then, so, so that's an example of people overlooking it, but then, you know, then you can show that once they see it, they, they recognize it. So we would have people mm -hmm. do repetitions and go through this same thing like five times. And like on one of the later iterations, if they stumbled across subtraction, they'd be like, Oh, <laughs> that's, that's so much better. So it's proof that, Hey, this is something they would have liked if they had thought of it. But, um, you know, back to your original question, I think that like 90% is, is probably pretty, pretty accurate in terms of like choosing adding it's, at least you, and it's, it is funny. Um, you know, the order of decisions is really important, right? Like start, stop, is it start, stop, continue? Is that what you Yeah, start, stop, yeah. continue. Yeah, and you're exactly, um, one of the examples I've heard of uh, in medicine is, um, you know, basically prescription cascades. So doctors are treating patients who are taking five different medications and then, you know, they end up adding another medication on to, without um, thinking to, or, or being able to like, okay, well, what would happen if we like took them back down to this baseline? And you're essentially dealing with the same thing, right? If you if you don't, if you think of all your additions before you think of the stoppings, it's a different situation. So anyway, I yeah, yeah. Switch, switch that around. That can be your um, your unique contribution to business theory. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very actionable and pretty simple. That yeah. example of pills, I remember it's a book by Nassim Taleb where he talks about why he doesn't take a lot of pills and his approach to medicine is removing things from his life. And uh, I think that's 
that's interesting. I am someone who takes a tremendous number of pills. I'm a bit of a biohacker, but sometimes I, I wonder when I'm experiencing some sort of symptom, whether I should take another pill or remove one from my arsenal. And we're digressing a bit here into <laughs> my, my biohacking, but I want to go back to, and you mentioned this, we, you, this, this may or may not always be a bad bias, but it does seem like for the most part, it leads to some consequences. And I think in particular about the potential environmental impacts of this bias. Uh, I was also wondering from your research, how much of a bias you've seen in the way that invention skews. So are we completely missing out on classes of invention because we are so, it's the adding is so ingrained. So the general question here is, what have you seen that suggests that this is a bad bias? Yeah, I mean, the the most direct answer to that is just when we're, the fact that we're systematically overlooking it. So all these situations where once people recognize it, they say, yes, I would have liked that. That's inarguably a bad thing. It's like we're missing options that we otherwise would have preferred. So that's the abstract way. The The patent stuff is fascinating. Um, and this is thanks to, if you Google, there's a paper on it with um, Clara Na and Caitlin Stenger and I. Um, and so we're you know, into this research about the basics of adding and subtracting. We're like, oh, I wonder if this is happening in patents. And so they they combed all the patent data since 1976 in the Google patent database and basically had synonyms for additive and subtractive words um, and then tried to see the frequency with which those used words were used in the in the patent um, titles and descriptions. And adding was used <laughs> way more. And the the gap is kind of widening. So I think I've I'm not going to get it exactly right, but I think it's probably three to four times more additive words than subtractive words in the patent titles. And, you know, we, that we were really excited by that and we're going along and then we're like, oh, geez, we better, we thought, well, what, what's it like in regular language? Because if in regular language, additive words are more frequent than, mm -hmm. then it wouldn't really have meant anything. It was just, but mm -hmm. it was actually flipped in the in the regular language so it, it strengthened our conclusions that um that the patent language was kind of underusing subtraction as a way to make things better and it, you know this is the in our very controlled experiments with grids on the computer screen we can see that people are overlooking it maybe patents there's some good reason why additive language is preferred maybe that's a better way to to get a patent for example <laughs> maybe the people who are reading them like that mm -hmm. uh, maybe it's a better way to display novelty so you know we aren't sure that that's you know definitely represents missed opportunities but it does show in this like really high order um kind of case of trying to take things from how they are to how we want them to be that adding really prevails and you give a great example in the book of an invention that involved removal which is the bicycle just so yeah. people understand that it is possible to invent through removal can you describe that example yeah, the Strider bike is um, the basically this balance bike for two-year-olds that I'm just disappointed that we didn't have when I was growing up. And mm -hmm. um, so it's basically like a miniature bike scaled down to the two-year-old size. But the the invention here is they just took away the pedals and the and the drivetrain. And and so if you've seen a two-year-old or three-year-old, and if you don't see them in your neighborhood, you can go on YouTube and watch. It's fascinating. They they basically pedal along like a Flintstones car. 
and they can balance, you know? So uh, that's the fascinating part is like after, you know, an hour or so on these bikes, the kids can actually balance. And so what's fascinating about that from an inventing standpoint is like, there's been all this history of like training wheels, you know, all these different things that are trying to make it so that kids can ride bikes at an earlier age. And, you know, the bike, bike companies trying to be able to like market bikes to that age group and uh well at least to their parents and it took that long to figure out oh what about just like removing the drivetrain and ryan mcfarland who's the guy who he started strider bikes which is one of the main like as adhesive strips are to band-aids strider mm -hmm. bikes are to these balance bikes um yeah, and he has these great quote of his like design process and he's going through thinking he's like i started out thinking how i could like remove the pedals and then i thought about removing the drivetrain and then i said well what what if i just get rid of all of it and um so it's like it shows that this process of like thinking about taking away um wasn't his first instinct and it took a while for him to get to it but it's a really powerful example of you know this thing that's been overlooked for a really long time and the mm -hmm. the answer was taking away yeah it's one of those you look at those bikes and it's this I forget where I heard this phrase, but the elusive obvious, it's one of those things where you see it That's and you're a great like, phrase. yeah, of course, of <laughs> yeah. course. I, I also recently started wearing, I had some back issues and I would get increasingly soft shoes and it wasn't helping. And then oh, okay. I went the other direction and got minimalist barefoot shoes. There are a couple of great companies that make that. And not only did I find that much more comfortable to walk in, but also my, my back issues went away. And when I wear soft shoes, I end up with like plantar fasciitis and so on. So I, I do think there's a tremendous amount of space in the removal. Uh, but uh, I want to ask you a question though, because you, you have looked at this to a certain extent, and I'm not sure if you have an update on it, but how sure can we be that this bias is cross-cultural versus something about the way that we're all raised in western society or some of the other cultures that you've studied yeah i mean the most direct evidence we 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 um so we did a ton of studies on this with basically u.s populations um whether students or people from all different you know ages on the spectrum through the debt survey databases that we have um and we we didn't find any difference between you know, genders between ages, you know, so we kind of like scanned for that. Um, uh, so that's, that's some direct evidence. Then also we looked at Japanese and German samples. So we had these other samples to see other cultures and same thing. There was, I mean, there was a little bit of variation, but not statistically significant. And the variation across cultures was less than the variation within cultures. Um, so we need to study it more. I mean, I, th I think uh, the question would be, in my mind, at least less about specific countries and more about, I mean, one of the ways that kind of we categorize things in the cultural psychology literature, at least is like interdependent and independent cultures. So independent is this very kind of Western, you know, self-determination um, view of the world and independent or in interdependent is like yin and yang, things are all tied mm -hmm. together and but you know the evidence we have suggests that it's pretty that it's it's not unique to one specific culture um but but we need to study it more and i think you know again the cultural when we're talking about the cultural thing in our studies this is just the cases where we overlook subtraction and i think there's also cases where we think of it and we don't 
choose it. Um, and that could also vary by culture, right? Um, so, and those are the ones that, again, this is not speaking from the science. This is speaking from like me understanding all the theory and then, you know, kind of guessing, but the, um, those are the cases where this kind of Western thought, I feel like might, might lead us to add more, right? It's you, you think that, okay, well, I need to get a patent and the patent reviewer is going to be like kind of biased towards adding. And so, so therefore I add, so it's not that you didn't think of subtracting. It's that you thought of both options and you figured, oh, well, adding is adding is what the people want. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that goes to the role of signaling or what you talk about is this desire to display competence. Yeah. What, what are some of the, and there's more than that as the origin, you go all the way back to biology with some of your discussions, but from a, maybe even a theoretical perspective, because some of this hasn't been proven and maybe isn't possible to prove yeah. if we're looking at evolutionary history, but what from your perspective are the biggest reasons or influences on the presence of this bias? Yeah. Um, I think the competence is a really good one to start with. I mean, so, well, first, obviously just this desire to acquire, right? Like to, to eat and that's allowed us to pass down our genes, but the competence is, act I was surprised how ingrained that is in our biology. It's not just the, like this modern kind of workaholic type thing, but in mm -hmm. the, the classic example of competence is the, the bowerbirds nests, right? So these, these bowerbirds, they build their nests and the male bowerbirds build the nests. And then the, the female bowerbirds go around and look at the nests and decide who to mate with based on the quality of the nest. And what the, what the male is displaying with the nest is not, they never use the nest for shelter. So there's no like function. It's just the male showing that, Hey, I can interact effectively with the world. And this turns out to be like a pretty ubiquitous desire um, to, to show that you can interact with the world. Arguably, that's why my son Ezra likes playing with Legos so much, right? He's showing, mm -hmm. hey, I can do this thing. And then you might ask, well, what does that have to do with adding versus subtracting? And it's like, well, it's really easy. It's much easier to display competence by adding something, right? Because then you've got this thing that is left there um, as as a, as you know, inarguable evidence of your desire, of your ability to kind of shape the world. Um, so when you add the Legos, there's your Lego structure. When you add another meeting to your calendar, there's the additional meeting in your calendar. When you add another team member, there's evidence that the executive tried <laughs> to do something to make this better. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the, I mean, that learning about that has really helped me um, because you know, I have the same desire to share, to show competence. And, uh, and it's not that you can't show competence by subtracting. It's just, you have to do more of it. I mean, so there's some really great examples in the book of um, where people have subtracted enough that it becomes noticeable. And I would argue that like the success of Marie Kondo is because she gets people to this noticeable less, right? You, if you see a I'm looking around at my office. If I just pick up one thing from this cluttered office of my kids' toys, my, like my wife's not going to notice that I did something. But if I completely declutter this room, she's going to be like, oh, my husband's competent. He's effectively interacting with the world. So you can display competence through less, but you really have to do a lot of it. Whereas adding, it's like, it's immediately obvious your competence when you 
added on. So I think that's a really big one. And I think it, especially in the work environment, right? You've got all these like people who are trying to, are high performers to begin with. Plus they're trying to like show that they're adding value to the company. And it's, um, you know, you have to think about how, how can you, I guess, set up systems that people show they're adding value by taking things. Yeah. And I, you do go into some of the economic discussion, how we've since after World War II really had a society geared around acquisition in relation to creating greater quality of life and avoiding conflict. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I do, I do think it's interesting. I did want to do two things right now. One is just talk about an example of exactly what you're talking about. That is something I, a decision I made a few years ago, which was to move all of my assets, financial assets into passive investments, because all of the research shows that passive investments, investing in index fund beats active investing. Like hands down, Warren Buffett had a, a big bet on this against a hedge fund manager and won. It's been definitively shown. So what I find interesting about that is that even in the case where the outcome is actually better for you to remove something, which is removing a bunch of stocks from your portfolio and just investing in an index fund, the, mm -hmm. the thing you want is actually better, but so many people still, and I'm assuming it's to display competence, will go down the path of picking individual stocks. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I just find that fascinating because it's a clear example of how by doing that, you're going to end up with a most likely end up with a worse outcome, but maybe people think they're better than the average or there's some other motivator there. I just, to me, that's a fascinating example. Yeah, it is. Also an example of just how a lot of these kind of biases can tie in together. Um, and yeah, so I, I hadn't, I mean, I, I'm the same way. I learned, I read the the Motley Fool like guide to money when I was back when I was mowing grass. <laughs> and that was like what they said, their, their key thing. It was just like harping on over and over. It's like over time and these, you know, fancy investors don't, uh, don't beat yeah. out just the passive investing. And so I've been fortunate enough to be in that for a long time. Um, and it certainly is a, uh, yeah, you have to like strip down your portfolio. And instead of having like 10 things that are worth whatever amount of money you have, just like one line in the portfolio. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, yeah, that's interesting. They should do a study where like you passively invest, but instead of just showing you the one line of like the Vanguard in index fund, they show you all the different things that you're invested in through that index fund. I wonder if people would like it better because it's like displaying more. Right. Um, yeah feels more like they're they're doing something in some sense. I, yeah. I also wanted to revisit one thing. You had some interesting math in the book that I had to think about, and I believe it involved woolly mammoths, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. But the idea here, and it's so, again, elusive obvious, is that actually subtracting can have a bigger relative impact than adding from a mathematical standpoint. Can you walk people through that because it was one of those things where I just like, I literally slapped my head with how, how obvious that made it, that you can have a bigger impact with subtracting. Yeah. I'll try to walk you through it. I have to okay. confess my editor, even at the last edit, she caught something there um, where it was like, Oh, this isn't quite right. And so we had to flip it around, but um, yeah, it is. Uh, so the reason I used woolly mammoths is because we were talking about like math and how it's like ingrained in us even before we knew about mathematics. So one of the things that we focus on often is, you know, kind of relative change matters more than absolute change, right? So when you're 
when you're hunting woolly mammoths, if you come across uh, one, well, if you come across a group of three woolly mammoths, uh, let me, I'm trying to think here. I think it was two and either two, and, two plus one or two minus one. Two plus, yeah, yeah. So relative and absolute change. So yeah, the difference between one and two um, woolly mammoths is much bigger than the difference between eight and nine woolly mammoths, right? So that's the relative versus absolute. But then when you're talking about adding and subtracting as like a way to change things, um, think about the the one or the, think about two woolly mammoths, right? You've got this herd of two woolly mammoths. If you add another woolly mammoth to it, you've basically, now you're at three and three represents a 50% increase from two. Um, whereas if you subtract the woolly mammoth from it, now you're at one and one is a 100% decrease from two. I, mm-hmm. I mean, That's a, yeah. that, that sounds about like what I remember. And- yeah. So and, and again, it's like the, the numbers are, are less important than the fact that, it, you know, the amount of change you're having um, by taking away is, is often bigger than adding, right? Adding is this incremental thing and subtracting, even if you're up in the, um, you know, eight, between eight and nine or between a million and a million and one, the, the fact is that the greater change is by, by taking away um, compared to the compared to the new end state. That's the key is you have to compare it to the new end state. So once you're at, at one, um, uh, the, the, the change is a lot different than like once you're at three. Um, yeah. anyway, I, does that, can you, can you explain it more articulately? <laughs> I, I mean, maybe I could make it slightly more practical just for what's on my yeah, yeah. mind, but I do think that again, we go back to this example of teams. And so, mm, yeah. you know, like, let's say you had a team of two people and you wanted them to move faster. Sure. One option is to add a person, right. Which as you said, is 50% increase, but the more dramatic option, which may or may not be the right option, but the more dramatic right. option is remove a person and try to have one person solve the problem themselves. Now that may not turn out to be the right approach, but it's a much bigger impact, even though it still involves changing in one person and person is just one example there. But I think even with the Strider bike, you could say, oh, well, why not add a third training wheel? Right. Right. Or remove both training wheels and get rid of the the pedals. So taking away is, again, just an example of how subtraction can be. Maybe that's not a perfect analogy, but subtraction can be much more powerful just from a relative standpoint. Yeah, the team uh, one is perfect. That's what, uh, yeah, if I hadn't already used Woolly Mammoths in the book, that one is, I mean, because that that just makes it so obvious, right? Because now I can imagine this one person who's working by themselves, and that is much different than changing a team of two to a team of three. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, terrific. That's, that's a really good one. And and maybe team of one, we isn't right, we can worry about the numbers later. But well, that's, that's one of the key thing here. It's like, this is not about subtracting is always better right it's like it's mm-hmm. just it's just overlooked and so the the shame would be if you didn't consider the team of one um mm-hmm. yeah yeah communication is much easier on a team of one it is so so how can people i'm assuming people can get better at this but how what are maybe the three or four things that are the most important things that people can do to increase their subtractive problem solving skills and then make it a habit so it sticks for everything they're doing. Yeah. 
I mean, read the book is the first thing. <laughs> you mentioned, um, I mean, one really great one is to to have it stick is to subtract first, right? So this, you mm -hmm. know, notion of switching around the the cues you're giving people. So this um, start, stop, remove or whatever. Continue. <laughs> start, stop, continue. Yeah, if you make the subtracting first, then people are going to be thinking about that all the way through the process, right? So you know, what our research shows is that the natural, natural instinct is to add. So that reminder to start is unnecessary. It's redundant with what people are already thinking of, right? Mm -hmm. But it, so you might as well just start with stop because that those are the options that people aren't thinking of. You're not going to stop them from thinking of the good additive options. But at least if you, if you think subtract first, you're, um, you're immediately addressing this thing that we we know we overlook. Um, so that's, I mean, I think that's a really good kind of practical reminder. And I mean, the challenge becomes, how do you remember this across contexts, right? So it's like, you've got this cue for your brainstorming session, but how do you remember then when you go to, uh, I don't know, arrange your individual calendar for the day that, you know, a stop doing is just as powerful as like adding some meeting, or in fact, more powerful, per perhaps than adding some meeting. Um, one of the things well, some of the things that are like direct findings from our research are that um, being under cognitive load, so basically being distracted or like thinking about other things makes us even more likely to add, right? So like mm. the reason this is a, it's a mental shortcut. And, you know, when we have these mental shortcuts, we rely on them even more when we don't have like attention to, to pay to a task. So, and this is kind of a, a, in a uh, damaging reinforcing loop here, right? Because the more we give ourselves to do, the less mental attention we have to think about our next things to do. And then we automatic, then we kind of like default into this, okay, I'm just gonna add because that's the that's our instinct. So giving yourself more like kind of time to, to think about or more kind of attention to think about how you're making things better, our research suggests would help. But I think the, you know, the blunt reminder and having the reminder first is really important. And I think um, one of the reasons I wrote the book the way I did, you know, just kind of like laying out the science and some some basic tips and like tips at the level of subtract first is I think knowing that you can find the places in your organization where those reminders are needed, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you can shift around this brainstorming thing. I'm sure you could uh, could think about how you would do this in, in schedules, also in ideas, something we haven't talked about yet, but we always kind of like add to our ideas. Um, and one of the ways to get to wisdom is to strip things away. So I think you could figure out where to put these kind of subtracting prompts and these subtracting reminders in your own personal lives. And then also in in organizations so that it's showing up as a reminder at the moment of a moment of choice. Hmm. To interrupt the way people are thinking, yeah. you would be, you're probably now the poster child for subtraction mm -hmm. and you've been immersed in this for so long. Would you say that it's changed how you think, or do you still regularly need these prompts? Does it get to a point where it just becomes ingrained or does it never become ingrained and you're constantly fighting this struggle? I feel like it, um, 
I, I do use the prompts, but I do think that I, I notice it more because of, you know, spending the time to write the book and then, you know, get to talk to all these smart people like yourself about how it applies in different cases. Um, so, yeah, it's not like this. I think what, you know, Kahneman will talk about his, the, some of the biases that they identified um, and and talk about how it's really hard to kind of change them. And our bias is a little different um in some ways, I think, because it's like a search bias, it's how we're searching our brain for solutions. Um, and so I don't think it's like kind of unfixable um, in, in terms of like, hey, we can get better at doing this. So, so anyway, the, the direct answer is yes, I use cues more. Like I, I, when I do my hour of thinking about the next week, I force myself to say, what are my stop doings going to be? But I do also think that I notice it as a as an option more often because of you know being immersed in it. And again, I think that's um, hopefully something that the book can help with too, because it it talks about these ways that you subtract in in different contexts and gives you the examples. And then once you're thinking about the Strider bike, you're wondering, okay, like what can I do in in my inventing mm -hmm. to to do something similar? Mm -hmm. And I think they're just great examples out there when you start looking people like Steve Jobs who was always yeah. about remove 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 buttons mm -hmm. that's how they got to the iPhone was no we don't need to have like a blackberry with a bunch of buttons remove the buttons what does that leave you with a touch screen okay let's go from there i want to be respectful of your time is there anything that i haven't asked you that you wished i did and just before uh, you get to that i will ask you where people can learn more about your research after this okay. question. But before we get there, is there anything else that I didn't ask that's been on your mind? Um, I think, you know, the one, yeah, the, the ideas one is a good one to close on, you know, so we, we studied this across kind of objects. So the, the Legos um, activities and, and situations. So like your schedule and work processes, and then also ideas. So, you know, writing as a representation of our ideas, but um, in there's a, a cool quote that's attributed to Lao Tzu that's two and a half millennia old. So it's like to add, to, to gain knowledge, add things every day, to gain wisdom, subtract things every day. And I just think, you know, for thinking people who are the types of people who listen to podcasts and, and work at really high performing companies, um, that's something that we, it's just a, another context to know about where, hey, our first instinct is going to be to add to our ideas. And we can also spend time, again, not being dumb and not like taking in information but like after we've taken in the information then filtering hey what's the most relevant information and then also thinking about what are the things that we know and kind of um are taking action on that aren't really serving us well anymore so subtracting in ideas is another just kind of reminder and that that um that works on the individual level, like kind of bringing us to wisdom, but also on a, on a collective level, if you look at some of the scientific revolutions that have happened, it's because of, you know, getting rid of an old mm -hmm. idea that has made the new idea. Um, it is often as powerful as the new idea, or is in fact, the new idea itself is just forgetting this old way of thinking about things. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, let's end on the ideas one, because that's really important. And I think um, right up the alley of your audience, hopefully. I think so. So th thank you. I have to say that both I found in the past, let's say month and a half or whenever it was that the nature paper was published. And then I think just a couple of weeks later, I found out about the book that the, just for me, it was transformative in part because it resonated so much with 
just the direction that I, and I think a lot of people in our industry and who I work with, the direction we go, um, I'm big on the 80-20 rule, mm-hmm. the Pareto principle, and this just slotted right in there. It filled that gap and allowed me to tell people, it, it really provided the grounding for me to say to people, there's a better way for us to approach problem solving. It's okay to take stuff away. So I highly encourage everyone listening to pick up a copy of the book, subtract the untapped science of less. Is there anywhere else that people should learn more about your research or to follow your latest research? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm easily Googleable. So my parents had the foresight to give me a Google name, Lydie Klotz. Um, so, and then like <laughs> Google Scholar is where the latest publications come out, but I also try to keep my websites up to date um, and you can find the latest research there. Um, this is by far the best. And thanks so much for saying that, Simon. I mean, one of the as, as researchers, you know, we kind of toil away with these ideas and, and try to put things out there that can be valuable to humanity. And it just is like, there's no better feedback than people working to make the world a better place saying, hey, this, this, this work actually helped in some small way. So that's great. Definitely. I think it can be transformative. And I want to thank you so much for your time, which I know includes the research. I think you said 10,000 hours or something of research plus the book. And plus taking these uh, last 45 minutes to talk with me. Thank you very, very much. Yeah, thank you. I learned a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think Fast podcast. To make sure you don't miss any future episodes, be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast player. And if you want to learn more about BenchSci and our culture, check out BenchSci.com slash careers. That's B-E-N-C-H-S-C-I dot com slash careers. Until next time, stay safe and think fast.